And that's really what our goal is. It's more than just selling food. It's making an impact in the community that we're in and leveraging the influence that we have for the greater good. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of That's Rad, a podcast presented by the Littleton Food Co-op. October, which is quite possibly my favorite month of the year, is finally here. And there are so many reasons for it to be a favorite. Yes, there's Halloween. Yes, there's foliage. Yes, there's pumpkin spice. The real and only truly important reason is it's National Co-op Month. Okay, so maybe it's not like more important than pumpkin spice, but I'm not gonna spend any time on semantics and coffee arguments and pretending not to be basic because we have much more important things to get to today. In this episode, I am so honored to be joined by John Santos, General Manager of the Dorchester Food Co-op in Dorchester, Massachusetts. I love hearing from co-ops outside of our own, and I think a lot of folks are gonna be excited for this one, considering it's been over 10 years in the making. Not not this episode, the, the, the Dorchester Food Co-op. But I mean, building something great takes time and building something so great that even Boston's mayor Michelle Wu becomes a member of it is gonna take even longer. For those who haven't been in the loop for the last, I don't know, decade or so, the Dorchester Food Co-op is well on its way to being a community and worker-owned grocery store. As you all I'm sure know, co-ops are a great way to bring new employment openings, opportunities for local ownership, access to healthy food, and more to a community. And now the DFC is going to be able to do that for the most diverse neighborhood in Boston. As you'll hear about in this episode, it was a major goal of this startup to include the wide variety of cultural, racial, and socioeconomic groups that make up the city. Like I said, joining us today to talk about the Dorchester Food Co-op is none other than John Santos, the general manager. I love John because John is truly a man that started from the bottom and worked his way up to, I guess we could say, the top of the food chain. He started by cleaning and doing everything he was told to at first national supermarkets. And in the, get this, 46 years since he started, he moved up from department manager to team lead to general manager at a number of stores, including Whole Foods Market, Tropical Foods in Roxbury, and Urban Greens Food Co-op in Providence, Rhode Island. And if you need a reference for just how long 46 years is, uh, it wasn't even called Whole Foods back then. And now he's taking the lead in opening the Dorchester Food Co-op and serving as general manager. John took some time out of his busy schedule back in September to sit down with me, and I'm so excited to share a conversation with you. So without further ado, here he is now. Hi, John. Thank you for being here with us today on That's Rad. 
Hi, this is I'm so excited to be part of your podcast. Well, we're excited to have you here too. Now, I understand that this is your 46th year in retail and your 30th year being a general manager. First of all, congratulations. What was your understanding and experience with co-ops before joining the Dorchester Food Co-op? Well, I, I was the general manager for Urban Greens in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, which opened up in 2019, just just pre-pandemic, and so um, it was it was really quite an experience to go through that with a new co-op in an urban environment that was catering to a, a community that. You know, it was pretty much a food desert to start with, and we were able to actually leverage our size and our supply chain. So we always had food throughout the pandemic where some of our larger competitors, the bigger box stores that are dependent on a much narrow supply chain, they were out of product. And so that really helped spread the word about Urban Greens in Providence, Rhode Island, because the city of Providence reached out to us and said, hey, can you help us feed 2,000 people a week? We're, we're in trouble. And not thinking, you know, really that this little co-op could pull that off. And so when we did, we really opened doors to, in communities in, in the area where we were at that, you know, we were really struggling to get into. They saw us as a, as a, as a type of market that, really wasn't catering to their needs. And so by by becoming this distributor of goods and you know we it wasn't just dented cans. These were these were planned meals that we would bag for these folks with recipe cards in Spanish so that it would be meaningful. So that really opened doors for us in other organizations and and that little co-op we received the best of Rhode Island three years in a row and the best startup in the country. So uh, it was really exciting. And then when the opportunity came to work on the Dorchester Co-op, I was very excited to be uh, invited to participate in that. Yeah, it sounds like a great opportunity. And I really appreciate you talking about all that Urban Greens did for Providence and the area. And as we'll get into a little later, you know, as awful as the pandemic was, it really did in many ways shine a light on what co-ops really do and the importance that they can have in their community. So I'm so glad to hear that Urban Greens was able to be a similar provider to the experience we had up here in Littleton. And you mentioned a couple things in that as well, like being in an urban area and a food desert. So it ha- sounds like you have experience with these sort of niche situations in retail and in the food industry. Now being with the Dorchester Food Co-op, how has the experience of managing a startup co-op been different than, say, corporate grocery or even an established co-op like Urban Greens? Well, you know, um Urban Greens actually, when I came on board, they, we were a startup. So there, there are similarities between the two because of the, the communities that we service and our challenges in stocking the store and reaching out to the uh, local producers of, you know, produce as well as other goods that we could sell. But contrasting that with my experience at Whole Foods Market as a store team leader for many years 
and managing a number of their stores here in the Northeast. You know, there's there's a lot of support that exists uh, in the corporate environment, uh, training and product sourcing and product management that that doesn't exist in a small co-op. And and when you're a startup, you know, it's it's really soft clay, and you have to you have to form everything that is going to ultimately become your business and hopefully something that will be sustainable for years. So that, you know, there's there's that initial difference in the back of the house support, if you will, even the idea of like sourcing uh, team members and, you know, hiring that whole process. When you're in a corporate environment, it's basically a, a playbook that you go by. It, it takes a certain breed of individual to be able to go through this process and be able to keep their eyes on the horizon. Uh, because there's so much that you're going through that can be very frustrating in making the decisions and then also having to maintain a level of flexibility because I can guarantee you the way the store looks on day one, it will look very different, you know, in six months, in one year, in a year and a half. And, you know, each of those periods, if you're, if it doesn't look different, then you're either super lucky or you're not paying attention to the evolving aspects of what your customers need. Mm-hmm, definitely. When you're starting up, parts of it would have been super helpful, but then with that support also comes all the confines and restrictions and the one, two, three, this is how you do it. So being new and being in that soft, moldable stage, you know, there is a chance to, well, I didn't like the way that this company I used to work for did this, so now we can do it this way and we can do it in a way that works for all of us and all of the community that's going to be part of it. You know, I, I, I agree that there's, there's a lot of value and ownership that comes from being able to call the shots. However, I, I don't want to diminish or, or outshine the importance of having structure in this process. So, you know, we've been able to reach out to other co-ops uh, to get support on, you know, PLU lists, product lists, um, you know, where did you get this particular dispenser, all of those kinds of things, which, you know, if we didn't have the support of really super co-ops like East Hampton and Northampton and all of the work that they did, how generous they've been, all all of that has just been great. It would be really, really hard. It's still really, really hard. Right, right. And that's where we get support from one of our cooperative principles about co-op supporting co-ops where, you know, it isn't necessarily from ground zero because we've all been there before with the PLUs and the machinery. And yes, you have to make local tweaks to things, but overall there is that big support network. So I'm glad that you guys found that. Now here, the Dorchester Food Co-op has been a work in progress. He's been building these systems and this store for over 10 years now, which is a huge testament to the dedication of your community and those directly involved and how much they want this to succeed. So now we're here. We're recording this in mid-September 2023, and your doors are about to open how does it feel? Is it everything you had hoped it would be? It's actually, I would have to honestly say that it's more than I anticipated in, in all ways. But before I get into that, I have to give a huge shout out 
to the first general manager that actually put their thumbprint on the Dorchester Co-op, and that would be Ed King from the Littleton Co-op. Ed served as a mentor for the board and provided a tremendous amount of guidance to help lay the foundation for me to then walk in and pick up those tools. So while I was talking about, you know, needing support and uh, opening a brand new store, opening the struggles that you experience, the soft clay, as I put it, you know, Ed King helped take that clay out of the bag and start to shape it, you know, and that gave me a good, good base to work from. So, yeah, you were asking, is it more or, you know, than I anticipated? Yeah, so it's definitely more than I anticipated. It was surprising. I had forgotten that I had actually also consulted on this job early on with an architect that, that came down and, and came through in Urban Greens and asked me if I could open a store, you know, what would be the things I would include? And so I, you know, this was back in 2019, and I, I gave my feedback. And then in 22, when I came up to the store to, to look at it, potentially consider being the general manager, I noticed some things that were very familiar, and I thought it was great. And then it turns out the architect said, well, you helped design this. So that's why it was familiar. But the the hiring process for us in this urban environment went a lot easier and smoother than I think anybody anticipated. Uh, we had been told that, on, that on May 20th, we would be receiving our certificate of occupancy. And then after that, we would be able to bring folks in. So we geared up for a June opening. And so as you mentioned a minute ago, we're, here we are in the middle of September and still not open yet. So the, um, the supply chain that, that provides us with all of the electrical components for our circuit breakers and compressor parts and all those kinds of things, Everybody thought that was all fixed uh, far enough away from COVID, but it wasn't. And so we kept having these delays, and then we were having delays with getting service folks here. And all of that added to, you know, quite an extensive delay. So that definitely wasn't anticipated. Uh, and uh, it's given our, our team that we – because we fully hired up in June, and we've had to kind of have folks on hold, many of them on hold, and, and some of them have had to – take other positions just to make ends meet and uh, but we were also able to bring a few folks on board and have them do some of the construction work some of the painting and cleaning and things along those lines that the construction team would have done so we were able to keep folks here we have a good core team in place um, I'm happy about that and then working with ECRS and getting our our software all lined up in our you know, so we can scan everything. That's uh, definitely a work in progress. There's, there's a benefit to having things happen quickly and not having weeks between. And so I think we're, we're kind of struggling with some of, some of the continuity and training because of the extended time period. But here we are. We're down to the last couple of weeks, and uh, now it's a, a hurry up and rush. So things are coming together. We've got a, a good relationship with Associated Grocers. They're our primary grocery supplier. We're using Kehi Foods for natural, and then we are uh, reaching out to other local suppliers for more of the specific ethnic SKUs that represent the community that we serve. So on that note, the Dorchester Food Co-op has put out that as a food co-op, the store will serve and reflect the wide variety of cultural, racial, and socioeconomic groups that make up the neighborhoods of Boston. 
Could you give us just a little background and information on the Dorchester area so those of us unfamiliar will have some context here when you're talking about reflecting on the community? Sure. So so Boston is made up of a lot of communities. Dorchester happens to be the largest community within Boston, and it is the most diverse community in Massachusetts. We have many peoples that come from Cabo Verde, Cape Verde, Southeast Asia, uh, all through Latin America, Central South America. We have folks from Africa. You know, all the continents are represented and in abundance here in Dorchester. And the community of Boston, throughout throughout all these little sub-communities within Boston, they're incredibly organized. So every street corner has representation, has a, has a meeting or has a group. And then collectively, the, the communities have an organization called Main Streets, uh, which represents all of the businesses. So Boston is a very organized community that is not bashful at representing its concerns. And it's an incredibly diverse community. So they have a high level of expectations, but they're also very supportive. You know, it's Boston strong. And that, that sentiment travels through all of our communities here. So then what does reflecting that diversity actually look like at your co-op, or what will it look like? Sure, sure. Great question. So initially, it looks like the staff. Our staff is hired from our community. Uh, we speak French. We speak uh, Haitian Creole. We speak Portuguese. We speak Cape Verdean Creole. We speak Spanish. We speak Somali. Uh, so we, we speak a number of different languages here besides, of course, English. So the, the folks, when you first walk into our store, you're probably going to see somebody that looks like you and, and speaks the language that you speak. The signage in the store also serves the, the diversity in the community. We have uh, signs right on the storefront welcoming people in multiple languages, as well as the departments that are depicted on, on the, the glass. It's written in different languages. So the the word for bakery is not in english grab and go and all of the, you know all the different items that you would put as a marquee for the street those are all in in the different languages that are reflected in our our community so we've got the folks we've got the signage and then of course it's our sensitivity to the mix of goods you know one of the stores that i had a chance to manage was tropical foods uh, also known as el platanero in roxbury they had a small store for many, many years catering to communities of color, and they brought in products that were not familiar to some of the main big box operators, uh, the Stop and Shops, the Shaws, the Market Baskets, those folks. And so they really made a, a place for themselves in Boston, and they were a mecca for a lot of folks from Africa and a lot of Latinos, Central and South America. And so I had a chance as a general manager there to become exposed to that mix of goods. I really felt that when I was at Whole Foods that I had learned everything there was to learn about food, having traveled the world on food until I got to tropical foods. And then I learned the whole ethnic mix and the, the sensitivities to certain brands, the types of products and how products are used and such. So we're bringing that, that here to, to the Dorchester Food Co-op. You'll see uh, a mix of goods that, that is specific to the, the communities that are residing here in Dorchester. Well, I, I, you know, the other components, because one of the things that you have to do is consider pricing, too. 
right? So co-ops kind of have a reputation of being very expensive. And I think in some ways justifiably so because of their, their, their concern for the way animals are treated that are part of the meat program and the way uh, the growers and the farmers are treated that are, that are part of the agricultural products, the produce products, everything from coffee and bananas right up through to the lettuce and the tomatoes that we get. Co-ops have a, a concern that extends beyond price. They're really looking at the human component and the human experience and sustainability. You know, these are some of the principles. I, I, I work for Bread and Circus, so for those that know and remember Bread and Circus, those were the cornerstones that, you know, you wanted to have sustainable goods that, that were sensitive to the environment and, you know, were fair to the folks that, that you did business with because you wanted them to stay in business. And so you, we have that challenge of paying people as fairly as we can, both employees and suppliers, and then getting seeking out the highest quality products. None of that comes cheap. So then how are we going to service this economically challenged community? Well, we're going to look at bulk. I am in a situation where I can purchase 100-pound bags of rice and 100-pound bags of beans and other grains and then market those in our bulk bin and build my pricing around a food cost that came out of a 100-pound bag. So now for those staples, I'm a much more attractive competitor to these customers. I can come in below what the folks that don't have that option, and I can also meet our standards of serving the environment and, and not contributing to, to the plastic pollution that's out there. And so dry bulk is one of the areas that we're very focused on. The other one, which is really new to our area in New England, is liquid bulk. Now, we've seen big vats of maple syrup and people have had olive oil, but we haven't seen vats with fabioso, a cleaning chemical for those that aren't familiar with it, that is, you know, a favorite of a lot of the Latinos and the Africans that are in our area. That's a, that's a cleaning product they use. And, and we can offer that product to them at a 50% savings to what they would be buying it at, at the local market, at, the, at our competitors, at the bodega. So there's that, and then there's other things like shampoos. And, and so it's also introducing to this customer base the idea of, hey, you can bring your container and you can buy what you need. So think about this. If you're going to use Tide, you know, it's going to be $23 for that big jug of Tide. And you might not have $23 this week to spend on Tide. You know, you're only going to use a dollar's worth of it. So you're stuck. Now, here at the Dorchester Co-op, you could come in with a container and say, listen, I just need $5. I need to get through these next couple of weeks until I can get some more money. And so that's an option that could be very important to our customer base. That and the fact that with, you know, a lot, many of our customers are going to be on EBT. And so in Massachusetts, you cannot purchase hot food with EBT. But what we're going to have is we're going to have pre-made meals in our cold grab-and-go. And these folks will be able to come in and purchase these meals. And many of these folks do not have access to good refrigeration and the ability to make, you know, a good, wholesome, complex plate, if you will. And then, of course, we have a microwave nearby. So folks that are on the street here in Dorchester will be able to come in with their SNAP benefits and purchase a nice meal and then on their own heat it up and uh, they'll be good. We also have partnerships with the Family Nurturing Center and the Bowdoin Health Center 
both of these are within a, a baseball's throw. One's directly across the street, one's right down the street. And they're very strong partnerships. And these folks really have inroads into this community, both in family care and family health, and also just the physical health of folks uh, besides that. So we're working with JBS, the Jewish Vocational Services, to bring in folks from the community that are their clients. Now, they service youth that have cognitive challenges, and we have an internship program with them. So they're going to rotate six different youth through our facility to do everything from shagging shopping carriages to bagging to packaging things, and this gives them a real-life work experience to engage with coworkers as well as customers. And so that we're very excited about that partnership. And then NFACT, uh, an organization that services Roslindale and other communities where folks might be in need of some food. So they're coming up right now to pick up some lettuce that we have. We're a conduit for truckloads that have been rejected by the distribution center. So maybe a box got damaged. And so the receiver said, you know what, I, I don't want that, that pallet. So the driver has to get rid of it. So you know what? They bring it here to the Dorchester Co-op, and we make phone calls, and that pallet gets distributed throughout our community. So even though we're not open yet, in line with those 10 years of effort to kind of make an impact in this community, we're actively engaged. Um, so those are just some of the ways that we're integrating into our community and finding a place of service. John, that is so awesome to hear all of that because it really sounds like you all are making this an active practice. You know, it's not just something you're putting out there for PR purposes or whatnot or to, quote, trick people into getting the door. You know, these are the standards and ideals you're going to be operating by, and that is so fantastic to hear. One of the things that you brought up is something I want to touch on a little bit more with this idea that co-ops come with whether real or imagined, and sometimes it's both, this higher price point. People have so many ideas, misconceptions, rumors in their heads about what co-ops mean, and sometimes it prevents people from entering a co-op at all. Like you said, there is truth to that. We want to support buying local, support community projects, paying employees well, those things cost money. However, there are neighborhoods in greater Boston, like Seaport or Newton or Wellesley, you get the idea where folks wouldn't blink an eye to pay that price. And things like having a microwave, having a solidarity fund, those thoughts wouldn't even maybe need to be considered. So what I'm trying to say is, why Dorchester? That's an excellent question. Why Initially, why Dorchester? Jenny Silverman, who is the treasurer and really founder of this effort, had been petitioning the Harvest Co-op way back over 10 years ago, 12 years ago, to please come to Dorchester. We're a great community. We're incredibly diverse, and we have a need for access to the kinds of foods that a co-op is committed to offering. And so the harvest shot her down, and she said, heck no, I'm not stopping there. And in 2012, 
they were able to incorporate the Dorchester Co-op and bang away at every little farmer's market and every every event and parade to build visibility for the co-op and get people excited. And so right now, even though we're not open, we have over 1,600 members, and many of them have been members for a very, very long time. So that's that's why Dorchester was picked, because Jenny saw the need and didn't get the initial support and said, heck, we're going to do it ourselves and, and had the fortitude to make that happen and could convince people that this was a, an important place to do this. And I think that when folks ask that question, why Dorchester? Because you brought up contrasting communities of wealth, communities and areas where they wouldn't bat an eye to spending, you know, $15 for a pound of bison. And they would recognize the value in that. It was grass-fed bison and, you know, amazing product and, you know, 10 to $15 is nothing to spend for something like that. But here the assumption is that, one, the folks in, in our community, well, they don't know any better. They, they, they haven't been exposed to this. It's not on their priority list. They don't value the things that other communities would value because, you know, it just hasn't been there for them. And so it, this leads to a much, much bigger discussion about what privileges exist in certain communities and others and how do we value food and what is behind our, our food distribution system that has us pricing and setting expectations in the way that we do. And, uh, again, this is probably a whole different show by itself. Now comes, like, the, the, the sourcing of products and making the store real. And how do we, how do we do that in a community like Dorchester, referencing the price issues and maybe even the awareness issues and, and concern issues that maybe the assumption is folks from other communities, communities of color and, and maybe immigrants may not be as sensitive to environmental concerns. Well, let me tell you, my wife is Colombian and we, we've talked often about co-ops. And, and, you know, they have a word in Spanish, cooperativo. I don't know if my accent is right. But the concept of co-op is not an American white privilege concept. It's, it's a concept that exists as, as the primary source of commerce in our world. So in China, in Africa, in South America, you know, you're going to find in Asia, you're going to find people coming together and bringing their goods to a central location and collaboratively offering these goods and being dependent on each other doing a good job in order to create a marketplace that will attract people. This is not a new idea. We just we just give it a street address here in the in the States, you know, and we bring electricity to it. So if you understand that, then you understand that it's about communicating to folks that this is not a foreign concept to you. You know, you're you the, the whole bulk department I'm so excited about because the, because it's going to be very familiar to our customers and the ability to meet the farmers is going to be very familiar and the fact that you want people to be paid fairly is not a concept that isn't sensitive or is pull on on their concerns also so it's not going to be a hard sell this concept of a co-op it's it's how you frame it in your own head that will determine whether you can find the, the words to share what it is to others. If you think of it as an elitist opportunity, then you know you're already building walls around your process. 
if you think of it as a collaboration of different specialties and concerns and efforts, then it extends beyond food into whatever services you can support. And so that is how we view the, the Dorchester Co-op. And, you know, with regards to the concept of just food, and when we look at the food choices that we're making, I, I had a vendor come to me, and I'm still really frustrated with this guy right now. You know, we were talking about Dave's Killer Bread. And he looked at me, he didn't look at me, we were talking on the phone. And he said, uh, yeah, you think the folks at Dorchester are going to pay for Dave's Killer Bread? And I, and I was shocked. I'm like, what do you mean? They, they don't deserve the option to have that choice? You don't think that, that they would value the quality of that bread? We should just make sure they mm -hmm. have Wonder Bread and, you know, WIC, WIC approved bread. That should be what we offer them. And I think that that's what we're trying to break down, that mindset that, that that the values that the more privileged aspects of our community can enjoy, the values that they and the knowledge that, that feeds those values, that somehow these communities of color that's absent in. In my experience at Tropical Foods, uh, really showed me that that is just so not true. And then, of course, my, my marriage and my wife did the same thing. But um, uh, I, I can tell you that uh, I am so looking forward to opening our store and bringing these excellent items and, and, and showing what their value is because I know that this community will embrace that. And, yes, we have to be price sensitive. And, yes, we have to offer, you know, um, the types of staples that are familiar. But we have a strategy to be able to do both of those and at the same time, show the benefits of why you might you might want to buy something that costs a little bit more because of the things that aren't seen in the store. You might, when you stop to think about that, you, you say, well, wow, how did they get that to me so cheap? And then the other aspects of why the co-op, why here? You know, uh, food security is such an important thing. And initially, we think about health, right? We think about diabetes and uh, heart disease and all of these things that come from a diet that is, is not balanced and good and rich in vitamins and, and fresh vegetables and things like that. It's just processed foods. I don't think there's any debate over validity or merits of a good fresh diet. But I think the discussion goes beyond just your physical health. You know, the co-op is a very tactile environment. You, you've got things, you've got people that are going to be engaging you. Our commitment is to service. And so you, you're going to find that people in this community that are used to shopping at a convenience store and buying, you know, processed foods are going to be buying basic ingredients. And they're going to be supported in cooking those ingredients with instructions and guidance and even being able to taste them here offered in our cafe. And so the idea is that if we can get more people cooking in this neighborhood, they're in the kitchen. And when I grew up, the kitchen was the center of the house. Now, most likely, if somebody's cooking, they're not doing it alone. Someone's coming in to taste what they're doing, maybe one of their children. And now we have a learning opportunity. I learned to cook standing next to my mom, and then I learned to do dishes after that. But uh, the cooking part was the fun part. And so we're hoping that we can contribute to that. Now, violence in communities is a byproduct of stress. And if we can lower the stress in families by getting families to communicate more, to talk about food, to share food, to be excited about being an owner of a business in, in their community, something that many people would not be thinking they could do, 
If we can do that, we believe that we can impact the stress in the family. And then by extension, we think that that will have an impact on the violence in the community. So we think that we're going to have a positive impact on all of that. And that's really what our goal is. It's more than just selling food. It's making an impact in the community that we're in and leveraging the influence that we have for the greater good. That is so great. And what you've been saying really reminds me of this quote that I wanted to bring up. It was in Edible Boston by Ashira Morris, and it was talking about these, quote, post-pandemic businesses. Obviously, it was not your intention to be a post-pandemic business, but like we were saying earlier, one of the good things that came out of this COVID era was shining a light on all of the shortcomings in our current food system. So I just wanted to repeat this back to you because I think it really goes along with what you just said. So Morris said, quote, these new co-ops are approaching their operating model from a public health perspective, recognizing how food choices and food access are part of building a thriving community. And I think that is just really, in my opinion, a great summary of of what you were just talking about and, again, how we could go on on that specific topic in a whole other episode. I, I agree 100%. That was a much more succinct way of saying what I'm what I'm experiencing, what we're what we're trying to create here in Dorchester. Great. And something else that you mentioned a little bit in food access and talking about the Dorchester Food Co-op's origin story is something that newbies to the co-op world or to Boston or so forth might not realize is that Boston has had a full history with co-ops. And now you all are in the position of coming off the legacy of the Harvest Co-op Markets, legacy for better or for worse. Uh, They closed their doors in 2018. And you mentioned maybe personally about you know, it's just about your frame of mind and and how you want to be perceived and how you want to be perceived in that public health way and perspective, do you find that your customers or your soon-to-be customers, your prospective customers, your neighbors, your community, all of that, are they perceiving you in the same way or are they skeptical of a new co-op because of the other one's ultimate demise? Or do they even remember something before COVID, you know? It's been so long now. Well, I I can say that when folks speak of the Harvest Co-op, they speak fondly of it, and they they tell me they were disappointed when it closed and that they're so looking forward to our opening the doors so that that effort could continue. And then to answer your question about how is the community perceiving us and what are their expectations, I guess the best thing I can do is tell you a story. So we received a 52-foot truck, a big tractor trailer, pulled in front of our store, and it had uh, three pallets of lettuce on it that we had to unload and and then get a receipt to the driver. This was one of those situations where this lettuce was rejected and uh, it, we were going to then uh, shovel this lettuce around to various community organizations so that people could have it. 
And unfortunately, there was someone who had parked their car in our parking lot and walked across the street to get some Chinese food. So when they returned, they discovered that they were now prevented from exiting our parking lot. And so he he got out of his car and he walked over to the driver and he was barking at the driver. And I heard him and I walked around and I offered my apologies and assurances we would be getting out of there as quick as possible and we get him on his way and then offering him some lettuce. And he looked at me and he said, wait a minute, you guys are, are here for the community. Don't worry about it. And he, he then sat down in his car and uh, he and his wife opened up their Chinese food with their doors open because it was a warm day and started having their dinner, which they intended to have at home in their car. And they waited the half an hour until the truck was loaded. I was able to get the receipt and get the driver on his way. That told me we're not even open right now. And that told me that, you know, that our presence in the community is recognized as an asset, as a supporter of the community. And that speaks to a lot of the work that was done before this, the brick and mortar was laid uh, to make our building. But it encourages me. And again, the, the ease at which we had at hiring folks and all of the applications that have come in is, uh, you know, it speaks to the, the reception that this community has for the co-op. Now, many of them are still learning what a co-op is about and all of the principles, but also many of them have benefited from the, the goodwill that uh, we've been trying to build. I love that story. Thank you so much for sharing. Circling back to sort of beginning topics we were talking about, since you mentioned your employees, I wanted to put an interesting compare and contrast situation out there because our Littleton Food Co-op is a consumer-owned co-op. Some of our employees happen to be members, but that's more two separate entities. And on this podcast, we've also spoken with co-ops who are strictly worker-owned cooperatives like Brooklyn's Park Slope Food Co-op, where all of their workforce primarily comes from member labor and it's a requirement for membership. Now, Dorchester is entering the picture as a community and worker-owned co-op. What does that look like and, and why is that the way forward for you all? So, you know, I think the best way to talk about this is to talk about focusing on the prize. And the prize is to to have team members that are owners that have a stake in the success of the co-op in in all ways, financially, decision-making ways, and in all ways to to have empower our staff. You know, it's a it's a a great employment model and I think uh I think that's the, that's the prize. And then also be able to welcome people in the community to have an ownership stake in in the business that they support and that mirrors their values. So that's the price. And the challenge is how do you equitably support that? And so some models have employees really sharing in in the lion's share of any dividends that are generated. And, And it can, you know, and along with that, there's a, a fairly substantial buy-in. Then other models, because Urban Greens characterizes itself as an employee-slash-consumer-owned co-op. At Urban Greens, employment is the buy-in amount for an employee. So if you become an employee at Urban Greens, 
you are now an, an owner automatically by by employment, and they have uh, they, everybody shares equally in whatever the dividends are. So there's no real distinction other than the way that you're reported. You know that you're a employee owner versus a consumer owner. So our board is really trying to figure out how to how to best serve both parties. So we look at things like for, for enriching the employees and, and, and benefiting them specifically, bigger discounts, like a 10% discount on anything they buy. And, uh, you know, trying to focus on as fair a wage as much as we can offer them and any benefits that we can slide their way. Uh, we try to do that. And of course, for our community-based members, owners, those folks, we offer a discount also. We also offer discounts for anyone on EBT, a 10% discount. If you're an owner member, and you present a payment with an EBT card, uh, you're going to get 10% off of everything that you buy. So, you know, we try to bring value to the owner members, whether they're an employee owner member or a consumer owner member, or, you know, in a subset of that would be the EBT folks. But, but what we're struggling with is that how do we manage the distribution of dividends and how do we uh, craft the, the buy-in amount? And we're still formulating that we had a board meeting last night and that was a, a big part of discussion so i know i have confidence in our board that we'll come up with something that will be very well received by our staff and be equitable and uh, still support the high sense of ownership and decision making that we want to be reflected in our co-op awesome and it sounds like you're well on your way to doing that so, John, thank you so much for your time. And, you know, I don't just mean today, like we said earlier, the Dorchester Food Co-op has been an idea, a community, a food system solution, 10 years in the making. And I'll let you get back to work in a minute, but I can't let you leave without asking the question we have to ask all co-op fans. So, are you ready? Fire away. What is your favorite thing to buy at the co-op, or what will be your favorite thing to buy at the co-op? Well, so I, I had a chance to sample it at a food show, a natural food show in Wayland, Massachusetts. It's produced at the Commonwealth Kitchens. It is made from ginger that is imported from Hawaii. Now, if, if anyone knows ginger, you can go to the big box store and find a big chunk of ginger, and you can use that, and, you know, it's okay, right? But then you, every once in a while, if you go to a specialty store, you'll find Jamaican ginger, which is super spicy, and it's really small, and it's, like, really potent. Well, I stumbled on this Hawaiian ginger, and this ginger is candied, and it's produced right here in Dorchester at the Commonwealth Kitchens. And it is fabulous. So I am really looking forward to being able to buy that ginger, bring it home, enjoy it. It's going to be good for my health. It's going to taste great. And I'll use it as a snack and also in cooking. So I'm really looking forward to that. Awesome. That sounds really great. And, yeah, John, thank you again. I learned so much. I'm sure everyone else did. And I think we're all excited to see what the future holds for the Dorchester Food Co-op. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to, to share who we are with your audience.
Thanks again for listening to another episode of That's Rad, a podcast presented by the Littleton Food Co-op. And thank you so, so much to John Santos, General Manager of the Dorchester Food Co-op, for being our special guest for National Co-op Month. Just like Co-op Principal Number 6 says, we love supporting other co-ops, and we can't wait to see what's in store for our friends in Dorchester. Make sure to check them out at dorchesterfoodcoop.com and on all social media platforms to see all the great co-opness coming from their new store. Speaking of keeping the co-op content coming, wow, say that five times fast. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe to That's Rad wherever you listen to podcasts to hear more cooperative stories, interviews with local farmers and producers, and the latest food trends we've invented for our own enjoyment. You know, you gotta do something to pass the time. And then, once you've hit that big subscribe button, make sure to give it a big like and even a review if you're feeling extra nice and cooperative today, but only if it's five stars. Once you're done, make sure to check out Littleton Food Co-op on Facebook and Instagram, at Littleton Co-op, and on our website, littletoncoop.com, for all the latest news, specials, and happenings around the store. And then, finally, once you've fulfilled all of the tasks I've assigned, come check us out IRL in the store, just off exit 41 in Littleton. But until then, all of you lovely cooperators, remember to eat, sleep, and be rad. You still there? It's time for the credits. This episode of That's Rad has been a production of the Littleton Food Co-op. Anastasia Marr is the host, writer, director, and editor. Jesse Smith is the graphic designer. Annie Stewart is the executive producer. All are welcome in the Littleton Food Co-op, Littleton, New Hampshire's only community-owned grocery store. No membership is required to shop. Learn more by visiting us on social media or going to littletoncoop.com. Or just come see us for yourself right off exit 41. Next time you need some locally produced foods, fair prices to fit your budget, and the best service in the North Country, Remember that Littleton Food Co-op is your place to be. Okay, that's all.